A compelling community. A compelling community. What makes a compelling community? Well, let's start off with community, first of all. Jamie Dunlop, who authored a book called Compelling Community, writes, A community can be formed through similar life experiences, life stages. You know, perhaps we could gather together for uh, youth or young moms, different life stages, helpful. Similar identity, he identifies things such as cowboy churches or family churches or uh, churches that are centered on sports. Similar causes, perhaps a homeless ministry or some kind of a, a outreach ministry that a church is identified with. Similar needs, perhaps, meeting certain felt needs of the people in the congregation. Perhaps even similar social positions. He identifies um, high-achieving those who have influence coming together to sh- join community. And what makes community compelling? Well, perhaps it's, it's dynamic programs within the community. Perhaps it's having an impressive campus or building. Perhaps it could be a long-standing history or even high-profile leaders could make the community compelling. However, all those things may form communities that could be compelling. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2 to see how the early church was so compelling that thousands came to know the Lord. We're going to be at Acts chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, I welcome you to open them up. Acts 2, verse 42 and 47. As you're turning there, a little bit of context. Jesus just gave the great commission to go make disciples. Jesus has been resurrected from the grave. He ascends right back to heaven. And as promised, he sends the Holy Spirit to indwell into the early believers. And then the church is born. And this is where we start off at the early life, the early church, the life of the early church. So please rise as you read Acts 2, 42 to 47. Acts 2, 42 through 47. Bible says they, the church, the early church, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Speak to us, Lord, through your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things through your word. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to see you more clearly through the preaching of your word. Father, help us to see what makes a compelling community, Lord, in a world that's looking for hope. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. What made the early church so compelling? What made the early church so compelling? 
This has been a common question throughout church history. Why? Because it's easy to lose. It's easy to lose. You could lose the essence of what it's all about and lose the compelling nature of the church. That's why there's been revivals and reformations that's taken place throughout the throughout church history. And church history also provides role models for us to learn from. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And a group of people that's had an impact on me are called the Puritans. The Puritans, you may be asking, who are the Puritans, Pastor? Well, they lived and started in the late 1500s in England all the way through the early 1700s. Uh, that was their period where they were impactful in the life of the church. And they primarily had influence in England, but eventually would reach out to the United States of America. And the goal of the Puritans was to have purity in worship in all areas of our lives, in all areas of our lives. And some notable Puritans, you might recognize some of these names, John Bunyan, right, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, John Owen, great theologian, Matthew Henry, some of us still read his commentary, Jonathan Edwards, these were Puritans. Jonathan Edwards was a late Puritan. And how do we sum up the Puritans? Well, Joe Beakey, Dr. Joe Beakey quotes John Milton, a Puritan poet by, who, who wrote, the Puritans want to reform the Reformation further. What does he mean by that? Well, coming off the heels of the Reformation, I mean, we're talking about John Calvin, Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli. These were men who established doctrine and helped the church get back to the authority of the Scriptures. So through the Reformation, great doctrine was rediscovered. But the Puritans wanted to see these doctrines lived out in every area of their lives. They wanted to apply the truths of God into every single area of their lives where these doctrines would influence marriage, how you raise your children, work life, pleasure, finances, even the thought life. The Puritans were very much interested not only knowing doctrine, but actually living out doctrine in, in their lives. So in essence, they wanted purity of worship in all areas of their lives, not just in the formal gathering, but in the informal life. Dr. Beakey goes on to say that the, uh, they believe, the Puritans believe that the head needed to be informed. The head needed to be informed. And then the hearts needed to be inflamed, inflamed, set on fire. And then the hands must be activated to serve and to live out doctrine. So today we're going to look at three marks of a compelling community. Three marks. And so before we get to point number one, this is a formative time in the life of the church. Before any politics got involved with the church, before any programs were established, before any traditions were established, any strategies or methods to, that took place in the church, the early disciples had a laser focus, laser focus on in making sure their minds, their heads were informed. So point number one, a compelling community has an informed head. 
And in verse 46 of Acts chapter 2, it says they were with one mind. That means they had the same mind. They thought the same. They had the same head. They had the mind of Christ. They were unified in convictions. They had one purpose. They were together in passion. They were bonded together with common beliefs. This marked the early church. They thought the same. They thought the same. So as we look at verse 42, look at what it says. They, this is the church. This is the early church. The 3,000 plus, according to verse 41, who came to Christ. They were continually devoting themselves. Devoting, this word, is committing energy and emphasis. This word has that meaning of, I'm committing my energies and my focus and my emphasis despite opposition and difficulties because there would be opposition and difficulties. The early church was consumed with sticking to these four basic essentials. And how it goes down the line is the apostles' teaching to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. These are our essentials at Evergreen. These are the discipleship essentials. You know where we found it. Acts 2.42. And at the top of the list is the apostles' teaching. This is number one on the list for a reason, church family. Because the apostles' teaching is the spark that sets off the chain reaction for great fellowship, for great commitment, and to having a strong prayer life. Apostles' teaching. Remember, this was a foundational time in the life of the church. The New Testament hasn't been written yet. So the apostles' teachings set the foundations. Ephesians 2.20 says the apostles and the prophets set the foundations of the church. Timothy 4.6 says this is the word of faith and the doctrine of the church. Titus 2.1 says this is the doctrine. So when it says the apostles' teaching, this is doctrinal teaching about who God is, who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is, the gospel, the gospel. Today, we are blessed, even more blessed in the early church because we have the entire Bible in our hands. I would imagine every single one of us have the Bible. If not, you can go online and get it for free. If not, we'll give you a Bible. Every single Christian in here should own a Bible. Whereas in the early church, they didn't have the Bibles. They were hanging on every word that the apostles taught. They had the apostles teaching, though, nonetheless. And this, the apostles' teaching, the Bible today, is what informs the head. It informs the head. And when the head is informed with a collected group of people, it sets what the fellowship is all about, koinonia. Because we have the same mind, we have a partnership, we share the same beliefs, same convictions, same love, same passions. That's what births genuine Christian fellowship. If we don't believe the same thing, we don't have genuine Christian fellowship. Things are splintered. But the early church believed exactly the same things. They shared in common convictions. They partnered in life together. They had a communal life which led to the breaking of bread. The third essential. This is the talking about the Lord's Supper, communion. Because they had informed heads, they, they knew what their commitment was about. And the Lord's Supper is the emblem of commitment, commitment from Christ to us, our commitment to Christ, and our commitment to one another. They knew what they're saying yes to every time they took the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is about commitment. It's one of two church ordinances that 
are about commitment. Baptism is about commitment, and so is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is an ongoing event that the church observes to reaffirm our commitment to Christ and to one another. And then finally, to prayer, to prayer. The early church committed to prayer. And of these discipleship essentials, the bookends of, of these essentials, God's word and prayer. This is what keeps fellowship and commitment really tight. If we're loose on God's word or if we're weak in prayer, commitment and fellowship is based on other things. It gets really unwound. But the bookends of God's word and prayer keeps everything airtight. This is why as Christians, we could have look at each other and say, I know what you're about, brother. I know what you're about, sister. We have fellowship. And I know what we're committing to. God, because God's word defines the supernatural nature of our fellowship. The Bible tells us exactly why we have fellowship. And prayer calls on God's spirit to supernaturally illuminate our minds. Apart from the spirit, we cannot understand. A natural man cannot understand the things that are written. Therefore, we understand what we're committed to. And the heads were supernaturally informed in the early church. They knew what they were about. They knew firsthand what they believed in. And as they looked at each other, they knew that their fellow brothers and sisters believed in the same things. Dr. Beakey says, mindless Christianity is spineless Christianity. I mean, if we don't have a strong conviction for what we believe in, more important, who we believe in, things will fall apart as soon as persecution hits. And we're going to see how persecution was a part of the early church. A.W. Tozer, we quoted him a few weeks ago, writes, always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Let me say that again. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she, the church, says about him, God, or leaves unsaid. For her silence, the church's silence, is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. So as a church, what comes to mind when we think about God? Are our heads properly informed about God? Do we have a true vision of who God is? This is important individually, but also corporately as a church family, do we have a right view of God? Has our, have our heads been informed properly? God's word illuminated by the Spirit is the key to knowing God. It's the, aim, the aim as a church family here at Evergreen is to have a high and right view of who God is. We don't want to see God low. We don't want to see God at our level. We want to see God at his level, have a high view who God, of God is. In essence, having a proper view of God, having an informed view of God. And only the Bible is the, reliable, is the only reliable source of knowing who God is. This is the gift that God's given us. Along with the work of the Holy Spirit, this is how we get to know who God is. John MacArthur and biblical counselor Wayne Mack write, virtually all doctrine and moral errors can ultimately be traced back to a low view of God. A low view of God. Low view of God leads to low standard of living. Low view of God leads to compromise. A low view of God 
man does what is right in his own heart. Right? This is what we're talking about here. And the early church experienced a supernatural work where the early church was a, was a compelling community. One reason was because they shared the same head. They had a high view of God. This marked the early church. And this is why at Evergreen, we emphasize God's word, whether from the pulpit, whether at Sunday school. God's word is, is central to everything that we do because we want to have a right view of God, a high view of God. And when the head is informed, point number two, a, comp- a compelling community has an inflamed heart. Our hearts are set on fire when we know God. This is what happens throughout Scripture. Every time Moses or anyone encountered God, whether in the burning bush or Sinai, he had a right view of God. His heart was inflamed. Verse 43 says this, everyone, who, what's, who's everyone? This is everyone inside the early church and outside the church. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Awe, phobos, the original language means fear and reverence. Everyone had the sense of fear and great respect and reverence for what was taking place. And what, they, what, what were they in awe of? Well, keep in mind, church family, what just happened in Acts chapter 2 earlier in this chapter. Pentecost happened. What is Pentecost? For those of us who do not know, this is when God's Spirit comes from heaven as promised and indwells the early Christians. God with us, literally God with, within us now. This is what's happened in Acts chapter 2. And it leads to awe and reverence. Turn back with me in Acts chapter 2, if you would. Acts chapter 2, 1 through 13. Pentecost happens. The Christians are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And supernatural things are taking place. And Peter preaches for the first time by the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.14, let me read this. But Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice. That means he's getting to preach with authority and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Listen to me, Peter is saying. And Peter is ignited by the Holy Spirit and he preaches. And as we, we're going to take a, Look at the high points of his sermon. This is not his entire sermon, but Luke, who wrote Acts, gives us the high points of his sermon. But you're going to see that Peter's sermon is marked by two things. Marked by two things. Number one, it's marked by preaching that's saturated with Scripture, apostles' teachings. He quotes Old Testament Scripture. And then, number two, he explains it. This is what preaching is. You read the Scriptures and you explain it. And then he ends up, thirdly, exhorting through what he explained. Acts 2, 15 to 21, he, he quotes Joel chapter 2 and to explain what happened at Pentecost, how God's Spirit would dwell man. He reads Joel and he explains this is exactly what happened. And then, verse, and then verse 22 is when Peter gets into the sermon about Christ. Peter preaches Jesus Christ Read, read along with me in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. It's very clear who Peter is talking about. Jesus, not just any Jesus, but Jesus the Nazareth. From Nazareth. 
A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. You've seen Jesus raise the dead. You've seen Jesus give sight to the blind. You've seen Jesus heal the lame. You've seen Jesus do miracles just as you yourself know. You know this, Israelites, men of Israel. This man, comma, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, God determined before eternity passed that Jesus Christ will be handed over to be crucified. You, men of Israel, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, the Romans, and put him to death. Peter, Peter is going for immediately inflamed, ignited by the Holy Spirit. Verse 24, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Jesus Christ died, but this Jesus is alive now. Since it was impossible, it was impossible for him, Christ, to be held in its power, in the power of death. And look what Peter does again. He goes right back to the scriptures. Verse Acts 2, 25 to 31, he basically reads and explains Psalm 16. This is David's prophecy of Jesus' resurrection. Scripture, explanation, scripture, explanation, scripture, back to scripture, Psalm 16. And look what he says, turn down with me, verse 32 here. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Christ is alive, you've seen it, I've seen it. All these thousands believe that he is alive. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, Christ has been lifted up, is back in heaven, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit living in us, Peter saying. He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. This is the net result. And then in verse 35, he, he quotes Psalm 110. And then verse 36, he explains again. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. That's apostolic teaching, guys. Reading the scriptures, explaining the scriptures, and then exhorting the scriptures into the hearts of the people. This is Peter, inspired, ignited, inflamed, set ablaze by the Holy Spirit. This is the net result. Some would say this is the greatest sermon ever preached in the church, arguably. And this is what Peter brought forth day one. And it really wasn't Peter. It was really God speaking through Peter. Peter was quoting the scriptures by the power of the Spirit. He understood the scriptures. He was explaining and exhorting the scriptures. This is preaching. This is preaching. This is apostolic teaching. Verse 37, look what happens here. And this is what you call supernatural heart surgery. Now, when they heard this, this is the crowd, the men of Israel, they were pierced or cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, brothers, what shall we do? Only by God's spirit do people respond this way. What shall we do? This is Peter's cue, and he understood what he was going to say. Verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, 
Turn away from your sins. Turn away from following other things. Do 180 and turn to Christ as your Lord. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The issue is forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In verse 39, he goes on to say that even your family members who believe can be called into a right relationship with God. Look what verse 40 says. This is an encouragement for all of us. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. If you're sitting here today not knowing who Jesus Christ is or you have not given and committed your life to Christ, you need to do this today. You need to be saved from this perverse generation. It was perverse back then, 2,000 years ago. But some of it was under wraps. But today, it's been uncovered. It's obviously perverse. You just have to open your eyes and open your ears to understand how perverse of a generation we are living in today. Friend, if you're sitting there right now and saying, man, my friend invited me to church today. I finally taken him up on this offer. Why am I here? Perhaps God is calling you forth, just like Peter did. He, perhaps Peter is exhorting you to come to faith, to give your life to Christ and be saved from this perverse generation. Because this generation will be judged. Judgment is coming against sinners. Do you believe that Christ is God and Jesus Christ died for sinners like you and me? And that he didn't stay in the grave. On the third day, he's alive, just like Peter preached. And he ascended back to heaven. Do you believe that Jesus is your Savior and Lord? And he's coming back. Today could be the day of salvation for you. Consider who Jesus Christ is. Consider your place with the Lord today. Give your life to Christ. Well, God performed an incredible miracle. The most miraculous act that could ever happen is not raising someone from the dead, not giving sight to the blind. Although those would be incredible miracles, the greatest miracle of all is that when any one of us come to Christ, perhaps a great miracle took place right now. R.C. Sproul says this, only God can bind the conscience absolutely. Just like how the hearts were pricked, that's a work of God. If your heart is pricked right now, that is the work of God in your life. That's the favor and grace of God in your life. 3,000 lives were reborn. Let's read verse 41. So then those who had received his word supernaturally were baptized. And that day there were about 3,000 souls or lives 3,000 lives were reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what happens next leaves everybody in awe. See what happens here? They were baptized. They were baptized. And baptism is an amazing thing, as we know. We, a couple of weeks ago, we were able to witness three people be baptized, make the public confession of faith before God and man here at Evergreen. It was amazing. Some of the testimonies left me in tears. I'm sure some of us were moved to tears as well. 
And it was an amazing time. And before we even get to the waters of baptism here at Evergreen, we have a step where we need to vet out the claims of those who want to be baptized. That's why we call them candidates, baptismal candidates. And so we need to make sure the confession is genuine. We need to make sure they have a right understanding. Their minds are informed of the gospel. We need to help them understand their commitment to Christ and to one another here at Evergreen before we baptize. But in Acts, you'd be saying, Pastor, how come we don't just baptize immediately? There are baptizing people left and right immediately. And, and Peter prescribes them to be baptized. Going to Israel adds a lot of insight for me. Uh, visiting Jerusalem and, and being at the Temple Mount, right outside the Temple Mount, the, the Temple doesn't exist anymore, but the stones that left the found, uh, that, that served as a foundation of the Temple are still there. And right outside the Temple, there are these mikvahs, these cleansing baths, where the Jews used to wash themselves for ceremonial cleaning before going into the Temple. There are a bunch of them. So I could easily see how thousands were baptized. All the apostles grabbed the line and they just kept baptizing people. Now, how do, they, how do we know that these were all genuine? Well, the Bible says the 3,000 were saved. That's number one. But Peter's call for baptism in that moment, right outside the temple, was calling for a full-on commitment. You gotta understand this. Remember what he says, men of Israel who you handed over to godless men, Jesus Christ has been crucified. Those men that handed Christ over were right in the temple watching what was taking place. So for any of us to say, okay, let me be baptized, Peter, I will be baptized by you, they're basically saying goodbye to family, friends, their way of life, work, their normal Jewish living, and they're saying hello or opening up to persecution, to be marginalized, to be sent out, to be imprisoned, perhaps even death. This was a vetting process in itself. By the early Christians being baptized in that situation, that was saying a whole lot. Yes, Jesus Christ, I believe you're better than life itself. I'm willing to give up my family relationships, my friends, whatever it takes to be with you, Lord. And baptism doesn't save anybody. We know this. But this is an outward act. This is an awesome act of the Holy Spirit. Because who would do such a thing? Who would give up comfort in life as they knew it? In front of everybody. This was not a closet Christianity thing. This was in the open. And basically, they're declaring their absolute allegiance to Christ in front of potential persecutors. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Wouldn't you, if you're there, whether you're one of the Christians or not, wouldn't you be like, whoa, what's going on here? Who would do such a thing? I remember a couple weeks ago, Brother Sam Wong, who was baptized, talked about some of the things that he had to work through in order to be baptized. Do you remember his testimony? Some of the most intimate relationships between husband and wife he talked about. And he knew the cost, the potential trials that could be there. And what was his response? In essence, he said, I need to obey Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but that, I was in awe in that moment. I was like, praise God. 
Let's come alongside this brother. Praise God. This is what God is talking about when he says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. The people were in awe. F.F. Bruce writes, F.F. Bruce is a commentator of, of Acts, the book of Acts. The conviction of sin that followed Peter's preaching, supernatural preaching, was no momentary panic but filled the people with a lasting sense of awe. God was at work among them, and they were witnessing the dawn of the new age. That's something that will capture your attention, will it not? Supernatural work led to a supernatural response by these Christians. 3,000 of them. They responded to God's word. Peter said, be baptized. They said, okay. They responded to Peter's call to baptism. 3,000 plus responded to Peter's call. And their hearts were inflamed. Those who were being baptized and also those who were watching were in awe. Everyone could see that true conviction of sin was taking place. Everyone could see that true repentance was taking place. That's an act of true repentance. I'm denying the world as I know it and I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. Everyone could see that this was true devotion for Christ. After every single one of those thousands understood the magnificent grace of God upon their lives, nothing else mattered. I need forgiveness of my sins so that I could be peace with God. This is worth it. This is worth it. And 3,000 hearts exploded and were set on fire and 3,000 experienced a supernatural forgiveness for their sins. 3,000 sinners escaped judgment into paradise. 3,000 members were supernaturally joined to Christ and to one another. That's what the people saw. That's why the whole city of Jerusalem was in awe. They are in fear, like, what is going on? What is going on? And what else did they see? Well, point number three, a compelling community... Final point here, has active hands. This is not just intellectual. This is not just like I'm getting fired up and I feel something in my bones, but it led to action. Hands. We're the hands and feet of Christ. Jamie Dunlap, who wrote a Compelling Community, calls this type of commitment a calling-based commitment rather than a comfort-based commitment. Rooted in theology, Jamie makes his claim there are 50 plus New Testament one another's that call for Christians to take care of each other. Care for one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, confess your sins to one another, rejoice with one another, mourn with one another, be devoted to one another, pray for one another, summed up in love one another. Now, this is just a survey of all the one another's. And look how the early church acted, verse 44. And all those who, were, who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Great generosity. Great generosity. Their heads were informed. Their hearts were inflamed. This led to a genuine fellowship. And they, had, they shared the same harmony with one another. They had the same ambitions, passions, desires, and goals. And the community, the entire community understood what the gospel was about. Saved by grace. It all belongs to God. I belong to God. 
you belong to God. And therefore, the hands were activated. The hands were moving. And one of the outworkings of the, of the movement was generosity, great generosity. 3,000 diverse believers congregated in Jerusalem. Remember the context of how these, all these people were traveling to Jerusalem. They were coming for Pentecost all around the region. They spoke different languages. Jerusalem was not their home. And many of these pilgrims came to Christ, and they didn't want to leave. I'm going to be part of this church. If you find a good church, why would you ever want to leave? This was the first church, and they didn't want to leave. And there was a great need that arose, and so the people of Jerusalem voluntarily, not forcefully, voluntarily gave up their goods to meet needs. This wasn't communism. This wasn't force. This is all voluntary. Free will giving. God loves a joyful giver. They were giving joyfully. But the, out, the point is that the outworking of this was generosity. Hands were activated to care and serve and meet the needs of one another. The Puritans, going back to the Puritans, they looked to reform formal worship. Not just to reform formal worship, but they wanted to reform formal worship to shape informal worship. This is formal worship, what we're doing together. We're coming together as a church family on the Lord's Day. This is the Lord's Day service. This is very formal. This is what we do. The Puritans wanted to shape all the formal worship so that informal worship was taking place with the one another's. Without anybody watching, without a crowd, the one another's are activated. Their hands are activated. To worship God in all areas of life, Right? Adjusting the formal to develop the informal. And look at verse 46. Day by day, this is a normal pattern of life. Day by day, continuing with one mind, one head, in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house. In the temple represents formal worship. They got together in the temple for the daily time of prayer, they still had access to the temple, although persecution will be mount, ramping up pretty soon as in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested. But they were getting together formally. Let's, it's time for prayer. Let's come together. But afterwards and throughout, day by day, they would break bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. House to house. This was Informal. Informal taking meals together, doing it, and sharing life together. Not because they had to. This is not communism. But with sincerity and gladness of heart. Because they wanted to. Because they knew this is natural. Because they're part of a supernatural family. Right? It just makes sense. It just made sense. And what were they doing? Verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. Praising God. Praising God. Remember what Jamie Dunlop said earlier in our, at the beginning of our sermon? There's a variety of reasons why communities can come together. A variety of reasons. And they could be helpful. I think these are helpful things to kickstart relationships. But that cannot be the sole purpose why we get together as a church. Here's something to think about, church family. Your relationships with people in the church and also outside the church 
What do you talk about the most? Or who do you talk about the most? Because who or what we talk about the most reveals what is at the heart of our relationship or our community. I have a lot of relationships with a lot of different people. I could talk to them about a lot of different things. Sports, raising kids, schools, politics. Those are all helpful things to come together. But that cannot be the ultimate thing. Let's go back to the Puritans. Kenneth Birding, who wrote Bible Revival, writes, Puritans would assemble after sermon. This is what they would do. The Puritans would assemble after sermon to rehash what they had heard in order to remember it and to think about how to put it into practice. That's what they would do. They would talk about the sermon after. They would also come together apart from sermons to read passages of Scripture and to talk about what they had learned from God's Word. They engaged in these conversations regularly, one-on-one, in groups, in the family, in the church, and when they could, in the world. Puritans apparently viewed conversations that incorporated scriptures as a Christian discipline. This is just a day-to-day normal way to living. We talk about the Word. We talk about Christ. Much like we view prayer or Bible reading or going to church. Just a normal way of Christian living. As we close out this sermon here, I just want to make an application. This is our fourth area of church life that we were talking about and preaching on. We talked about the Lord's Day service. We talked about equipping. We talked about serving, building up the body through serving. Fourthly, we're talking about life groups today. This is an application of life groups I want to apply everything that we talked about into life groups. What's a life group? These are formal, formal opportunities that our church wants to focus in on to develop informal relationships, right? Life groups are such things as branches. These are community groups, if you don't know uh, what branches are. Life groups are things such as youth groups, mothers with young children, discipleship groups, harvesters, various groups that we have. All right, And what we would like to see and what we've suggested to many of our leaders is to let's apply the teaching, the apostles' teachings to the day-to-day life of what's going on in your group. From the pulpit, there's no way we could address every situation in every relationship, in every life stage, all those sort of things. However, leaders, let's apply what was preached so that the youth can understand what was preached, how relevant God's word is to their lives, to those who are aging, how God's word relates to their lives from others, so forth and so on. Let's apply what was preached so that we can understand it and apply it and care for one another. Through it, deeper fellowship happens when you go deeper into life with one another. And then we get to encourage each other in our commitments to Christ, to his church, to the pursuit of holiness. That's how this works. And then we get to pray for one another. Let's spend most of those times when we gather in live groups, reviewing message, applying the message, praying for each other, and developing deeper relationships and fellowships, fellowship with one another. 
We have deep times of teaching through the pulpit. We have deep times of teaching through ACE and Sunday school. Life groups, let's do life with one another day by day from house to house. And it was so super encouraging for me to hear from our, some of our branches where some of our branch members or church members were going through some personal crisis times. And it was awesome to see, awesome to see branch members jumping in and coming alongside these members who are going through hard times. That's what branches are about. Youth groups, can we be that way? Can we have heads in form, hearts in flame, and hands that are active so that when new people come, high schoolers and junior high schoolers, it will look like a compelling community. They would want to join. They'd be like, of course I'd want to be, but this is genuine. Just, this is just my own commentary on the day a little bit. You know, as pastors, we need to have a handle on the spirit of the age or the, the, uh, how the culture is going. I mean, we live in a politically correct world, do we not, church family? And constant shifting values and views. You have to get your college degree to keep up with every single thing that's acceptable and ex- unacceptable these days. Some tried and true values and principles are going out the door and say, you can't say that. Light is darkness. Darkness is light. Things are getting flipped upside down. We got to look to culture to to know what we can say and what was acceptable to say. In essence, if you go along with us, we're being trained to be a bunch of chameleons who shapeshift and change our colors for what's needed and what's acceptable in the times. We don't want to play this game. As Christians, we do not play this game. We're not shapeshifters. We're not chameleons. We don't keep popping on, off masks. We don't do this. Christians are not called to live this way. You know what the world is looking for? Because the world is filled with a bunch of chameleons. They want to know what's real. They want to know what's genuine. So what will be so compelling to the world? Well, when they see the genuineness of our claims of Christ lived out in our lives. They see we understand. They see we have passion or our hearts are ignited, but also we're living it out in our hands and our feet with one another particularly. Christianity is about Christ. Nothing else. It's about Jesus Christ. Do they see Christ in you and me? That would be very compelling. Otherwise, they will just see us, oh, they're just part of the game. They just have a Christian coat of paint on them. They're not real. They're just like everybody else. I know what the Bible teaches, and they're not willing to say it. They listen to CNN more than they listen to Peter. The world is looking for truth. And look, let's finish up here with verse 47, church family. Beloved, at the end, and the Lord... And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now that's a compelling community. You may be saying, Pastor Rocky, that was a special time in the life of the church. Sure, this was a a descriptive moment in the life of the church, early church, but 
We have all the resources that they did, though. We have the Holy Spirit. We have all the apostles' teachings right here. Right here. We have each other. We have an opportunity to commit through, through the ordinances and to impress uh, upon one another to commit to Christ and to the church. And we have direct access to God through, through prayer. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this model of the early church. Thank you for these role models from Peter to the early apostles and the early church members. Thank you for their boldness and their courage to be baptized in the face of persecution. Thank you for their boldness and courage to be able to gather formally at the temple. Thank you for role models such as the Puritans throughout church history who teach us about reform and, and revival. Thank you for these simple principles that they taught clearly out of the scriptures that we must have our heads informed with truth so that we have a right and high view of you, Lord Jesus. And their hearts must be inflamed, ignited on fire for your son, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit and through truth as we worship you in spirit and truth. And thank you that they, the Puritans, believe in the practical Christianity where hands must be activated to fulfill the one another's in the church. You say how good it is for brothers to dwell in unity, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you unite our heads and our hearts, our hands here at Evergreen Church because we know your son so well. And Lord, would you allow us to be a compelling community for the lost? Because they are looking for truth. They're looking for hope in this perverse generation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you saved us from such a time as this. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.